Chapter Eight of Behind a Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. Behind a Mask, or A Woman's Power, by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Eight. Suspense. All the next day, Jean was in a state of the most intense anxiety as every hour brought the crisis nearer, and every hour might bring defeat, for the subtlest human skill is often thwarted by some unforeseen accident. She longed to assure herself that Sir John was gone, but no servants came or went that day, and she could devise no pretext for sending to glean intelligence. She dared not go herself, lest the unusual act should excite suspicion, for she never went till evening. Even had she determined to venture, there was no time, for Mrs. Coventry was in one of her nervous states, and no one but Miss Muir could amuse her. Lucia was ill, and Miss Muir must give orders. Bella had a studious fit, and Jean must help her. Coventry lingered about the house for several hours, but Jean dared not send him, lest some hint of the truth might reach him. He had ridden away to his new duties when Jean did not appear, and the day dragged on wearyingly. Night came at last, and as Jean dressed for the late dinner, she hardly knew herself when she stood before the mirror, excitement lent such colour and brilliancy to her countenance. Remembering the wedding which was to take place that evening, she put on a simple white dress, and added a cluster of white roses in bosom and hair. She often wore flowers but in spite of her desire to look and seem as usual, Bella's first words as she entered the drawing-room were, "'Why, Jean, how like a bride you look! A veil and gloves would make you quite complete.' "'You forget one other trifle, Bell,' said Gerald, with eyes that brightened as they rested on Miss Muir. "'What is that?' asked his sister. "'A bridegroom.' Bella looked to see how Jean received this, but she seemed quite composed as she smiled one of her sudden smiles, and merely said, "'That trifle will doubtless be found when the time comes. Is Miss Beaufort too ill for dinner?' "'She begs to be excused, and said you would be willing to take her place, she thought.' As innocent Bella delivered this message, Jean glanced at Coventry, who evaded her eye and looked ill at ease. "'A little remorse will do him good.' and prepare him for repentance after the grand coup," she said to herself, and was particularly gay at dinner-time, though Coventry looked often at Lucia's empty seat, as if he missed her. As soon as they left the table, Miss Muir sent Bella to her mother, and knowing that Coventry would not linger long at his wine, she hurried away to the hall. A servant was lounging at the door, and of him she asked, in a tone which was eager in spite of all efforts to be calm, "'Is Sir John at home?' "'No, miss, he's just gone to town.' "'Just gone? What do you mean?' cried Jean, forgetting the relief she felt in hearing of his absence, in surprise at his late departure. "'He went half an hour ago, miss, in the last train, miss.' "'I thought he was going early this morning. He told me he should be back this evening.' "'I believe he did mean to go, but was delayed by company. The steward came up on business, and a load of gentlemen called, so Sir John could not get off till night, when he wasn't fit to go, being worn out and far from well.' Do you think he will be ill? Did he look so?" And as Jean spoke, a thrill of fear passed over her, lest death should rob her of her prize. 
"'Well, you know, miss, hurry of any kind is bad for elderly gentlemen inclined to apoplexy. Sir John was in a worry all day, and not like himself. I wanted him to take his man, but he wouldn't, and drove off looking flushed and excited-like. I'm anxious about him, for I know something is amiss to hurry him off in this way.' "'When will he be back, Ralph?' "'Tomorrow noon, if possible. At night, certainly. He bid me tell any one that called.' "'Did he leave no note or message for Miss Coventry, or someone of the family?' "'No, miss, nothing.' "'Thank you.' And Jean walked back to spend a restless night, and rise to meet renewed suspense. The morning seemed endless, but noon came at last, and under the pretense of seeking coolness in the grotto, Jean stole away to a slope whence the gate to the hall park was visible. For two long hours she watched, and no one came. She was just turning away when a horseman dashed through the gate, and came galloping toward the hall. Heedless of everything but the uncontrollable longing to gain some tidings, she ran to meet him, feeling assured that he brought ill news. It was a young man from the station, and as he caught sight of her, he drew bridle, looking agitated and undecided. "'Has anything happened?' she cried breathlessly. "'A dreadful accident on the railroad, just the other side of Croydon. News telegraphed half an hour ago,' answered the man, wiping his hot face. "'The noon train! Was Sir John in it? Quick, tell me all!' "'It was that train, miss, but whether Sir John was in it or not we don't know, for the guard is killed, and everything is in such confusion that nothing could be certain. They are at work getting out the dead and the wounded. We heard that Sir John was expected, and I came up to tell Mr. Coventry, thinking he would wish to go down. A train leaves in fifteen minutes. Where shall I find him? I was told he was at the hall.' "'Ride on, ride on, and find him if he is there. I'll run home and look for him. Lose no time. Ride, ride!' And turning, Jean sped back like a deer, while the man tore up the avenue to rouse the hall. Coventry was there, and went off at once, leaving both hall and house in dismay. Fearing to betray the horrible anxiety that possessed her, Jean shut herself up in her room and suffered untold agonies as the day wore on and no news came. At dark a sudden cry rang through the house, and Jean rushed down to learn the cause. Bella was standing in the hall, holding a letter, with a group of excited servants hovering near her. "'What is it?' demanded Miss Muir, pale and steady, though her heart died within her as she recognized Gerald's handwriting. Bella gave her the note, and hushed her sobbing to hear again the heavy tidings that had come. "'Dear Bella, Uncle is safe. He did not go in the noon train. But several persons are sure that Ned was there. No trace of him as yet, but many bodies are in the river, under the ruins of the bridge, and I am doing my best to find the poor lad if he is there. I have sent to all his haunts in town, and as he has not been seen, I hope it is a false report and he is safe with his regiment. Keep this from my mother till we are sure. I write you because Lucia is ill. Miss Muir will comfort and sustain you. Hope for the best, dear." Yours, G. C. Those who watched Miss Muir as she read these words wondered at the strange expressions which passed over her face, for the joy which appeared there as Sir John's safety was made known did not change to grief or horror at poor Edward's possible fate. The smile died on her lips, but her voice did not falter, and in her downcast eyes shone an inexplicable look of something like triumph. No wonder, for if this was true, the danger which menaced her was averted for a time, and the marriage might be consummated without such desperate haste. 
This sad and sudden event seemed to her the mysterious fulfilment of a secret wish. And though startled, she was not daunted, but inspirited, for fate seemed to favour her designs. She did comfort Bella, control the excited household, and keep the rumours from Mrs. Coventry all that dreadful night. At dawn Gerald came home exhausted, and bringing no tidings of the missing man. He had telegraphed to the headquarters of the regiment and received a reply, stating that Edward had left for London the previous day, meaning to go home before returning. The fact of his having been at the London station was also established, but whether he left by the train or not was still uncertain. The ruins were still being searched, and the body might yet appear. "'Is Sir John coming at noon?' asked Jean, as the three sat together in the rosy hush of dawn, trying to hope against hope. "'No. He had been ill, I learned from young Gower, who is just from town, and so had not completed his business. I sent him word to wait till night, for the bridge won't be passable till then. Now I must try and rest an hour. I have worked all night, and have no strength left. Call me the instant any messenger arrives." With that, Coventry went to his room, Bella followed to wait on him, and Jean roamed through house and grounds, unable to rest. The morning was far spent when the messenger arrived. Jean went to receive his tidings, with the wicked hope still lurking at her heart. "'Is he found?' she asked calmly, as the man hesitated to speak. "'Yes, ma'am.' "'You are sure?' "'I am certain, ma'am, though some won't say till Mr. Coventry comes to look.' "'Is he alive?' And Jean's white lips trembled as she put the question. "'Oh, no, ma'am. That weren't possible under all them stones and water. The poor young gentleman is so wet and crushed and torn no one would know him, except for the uniform, and the white hand with the ring on it." Jean sat down very pale, and the man described the finding of the poor shattered body. As he finished, Coventry appeared, and with one look of mingled remorse, shame, and sorrow, the elder brother went away to find and bring the younger home. Jean crept into the garden like a guilty thing, trying to hide the satisfaction which struggled with a woman's natural pity, for so sad an end for this brave young life. "'Why waste tears or feign sorrow when I must be glad?' she muttered, as she paced to and fro along the terrace. "'The poor boy is out of pain, and I am out of danger.' She got no further, for turning as she spoke, she stood face to face with Edward. Bearing no mark of peril on dress or person, but stalwart and strong as ever, he stood there looking at her with contempt and compassion struggling in his face. As if turned to stone, she remained motionless, with dilated eyes, arrested breath, and paling cheek. He did not speak, but watched her silently till she put out a trembling hand, as if to assure herself by touch that it was really he. Then he drew back, and as if the act convinced as fully as words, she said slowly, "'They told me you were dead.' "'And you were glad to believe it?' "'No. It was my young comrade, Courtney, who unconsciously deceived you all, and lost his life, as I should have done if I had not gone to Ascot after seeing him off yesterday.' "'To Ascot?' echoed Jean, shrinking back, for Edward's eye was on her, and his voice was stern and cold. "'Yes.' You know the place. I went there to make inquiries concerning you, and was well satisfied. Why are you still here? The three days are not over yet. I hold you to your promise. Before night I shall be gone. Till then you will be silent, if you have honour enough to keep your word. 
I have. Edward took out his watch, and as he put it back, said with cool precision, It is now two. The train leaves for London at half-past six. A carriage will wait for you at the side door. Allow me to advise you to go then, for the instant dinner is over. I shall speak." And with a bow he went into the house, leaving Jean nearly suffocated with a throng of contending emotions. For a few minutes she seemed paralyzed, but the native energy of the woman forbade utter despair, till the last hope was gone. Frail as that now was, she still clung to it tenaciously, resolving to win the game in defiance of everything. Springing up she went to her room, packed her few valuables, dressed herself with care, and then sat down to wait. She heard a joyful stir below, saw Coventry come hurrying back, and from a garrulous maid learned that the body was of young Courtney. The uniform being the same as Edward's, and the ring, a gift from him, had caused the men to believe the disfigured corpse to be that of the younger Coventry. No one but the maid came near her. Once Bella's voice called her, but someone checked the girl, and the call was not repeated. At five an envelope was brought her, directed in Edward's hand, and containing a cheque which more than paid a year's salary. No word accompanied the gift, yet the generosity of it touched her, for Jean Muir had the relics of a once honest nature, and despite her falsehood could still admire nobleness and respect virtue. A tear of genuine shame dropped on the paper, and real gratitude filled her heart, as she thought that even if all else failed, she was not thrust out penniless into the world which had no pity for poverty. As the clock struck six, she heard a carriage drive around and went down to meet it. A servant put on her trunk, gave the order, "'To the station, James,' and she drove away without meeting anyone, speaking to anyone, or apparently being seen by anyone. A sense of utter weariness came over her, and she longed to lie down and forget. But the last chance still remained, and till that failed she would not give up. Dismissing the carriage, she seated herself to watch for the quarter-past six train from London, for in that Sir John would come if he came at all that night. She was haunted by the fear that Edward had met and told him. The first glimpse of Sir John's frank face would betray the truth. If he knew all, there was no hope, and she would go her way alone. If he knew nothing, there was yet time for the marriage, and once his wife, she knew she was safe because for the honour of his name he would screen and protect her. Up rushed the train, out stepped Sir John, and Jean's heart died within her. Grave and pale and worn he looked, and leaned heavily on the arm of a portly gentleman in black. The Reverend Mr. Fairfax, why has he come, if the secret is out? thought Jean, slowly advancing to meet them and fearing to read her fate in Sir John's face. He saw her, dropped his friend's arm, and hurried forward with the ardour of a young man, exclaiming as he seized her hand with a beaming face, a glad voice, "'My little girl! Did you think I would never come?' She could not answer, the reaction was too strong, but she clung to him, regardless of time or place, and felt that her last hope had not failed. Mr. Fairfax proved himself equal to the occasion. Asking no questions, he hurried Sir John and Jean into a carriage and stepped in after them with a bland apology. Jean was soon herself again, and having told her fears at his delay, listened eagerly while he related the various mishaps which had detained him. "'Have you seen Edward?' was her first question. 
"'Not yet, but I know he has come, and have heard of his narrow escape. I should have been in that train if I had not been delayed by the indisposition which I then cursed, but now bless. Are you ready, Jean? Do you repent your choice, my child?' "'No, no, I am ready. I am only too happy to become your wife, dear generous Sir John.' cried Jean, with a glad alacrity, which touched the old man to the heart, and charmed the Reverend Mr. Fairfax, who concealed the romance of a boy under his clerical suit. They reached the hall. Sir John gave orders to admit no one, and after a hasty dinner sent for his old housekeeper and his steward, told them of his purpose, and desired them to witness his marriage. Obedience had been the law of their lives, and Master could do nothing wrong in their eyes, so they played their parts willingly for Jean was a favourite at the hall. Pale as her gown, but calm and steady, she stood beside Sir John, uttering her vows in a clear tone, and taking upon herself the vows of a wife with more than a bride's usual docility. When the ring was fairly on, a smile broke over her face. When Sir John kissed her and called her his little wife, she shed a tear or two of sincere happiness, and when Mr. Fairfax addressed her as, "'My lady,' She laughed her musical laugh, and glanced up at a picture of Gerald with eyes full of exultation. As the servants left the room, a message was brought from Mrs. Coventry, begging Sir John to come to her at once. "'You will not go, and leave me so soon,' pleaded Jean, well knowing why he was sent for. "'My darling, I must!' And in spite of its tenderness, Sir John's manner was too decided to be withstood. "'Then I shall go with you,' cried Jean resolving that no earthly power should part them. End of chapter 8